This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Seven Little Australians by Ethel Turner Chapter 19 A Pale Blue Hair Ribbon She in her virginal beauty as pure as a pictured saint, how should this sinning and sorrow have for her danger or taint? The reason our sweet pale Margaret had been reluctant of her smiles was on account of the very man who alone missed them. Quite a warm friendship had sprung up during the month between the little fair-faced girl, who looked with such serene blue eyes to a future she felt must be beautiful, and the world-worn man, who looked back to a past all blackened and unlovely by his own acts. He rode with the two girls every day, because Mrs. Hassel did not like them going long distances alone, and, seeing Judy seldom walked her horse, and Meg's steed had not a canter in it, it fell out that he kept beside the slow and timid rider all the time. "'You remind me of a little sister I had who died,' he said slowly to Meg once, after a long talk. "'Perhaps if she were alive now I should not be quite so contemptible.' Meg's face flushed scarlet, and a shamed look had come into her eyes. It seemed altogether terrible to her that he should know she knew of his failing. "'Perhaps it makes her sorry now,' she said in a whisper he scarcely heard, and then she grew pale at her boldness, and rode on a little way to hide her distressed looks. On the way home the pale blue ribbon that tied the strands of her sunny plait together blew off. He dismounted and picked it up. Meg stretched out her hand for it, but he untied the bow and folded it slowly round his big hand. "'May I keep it?' he said in a low voice. "'For my blue ribbon? I know the conditions that attach.' "'If you would, oh, if you would,' Meg breathed rather than said. Then Judy galloped up and they rode home three abreast. It was such happiness to her all the hot long days that followed.' To a girl just entering life there can be no purer, deeper feeling of pleasure than that brought by the knowledge that she is influencing for good some man or woman older than herself, more sin-worn and earth-wearied. Poor little Meg! Her tender rose dreams had pictured her big protégé, a man among men again, holding up his head once more, taking his place in the world, going back to the old country, and claiming the noble lady her fertile imagination had pictured, waiting so patiently for him and all this because she, Meg Woolcott, had stepped into his life and pointed the way he should go. And then she went to swing in a hammock on the back veranda, and all her castles came tumbling about her ears, dealing her sharp, bitter blows. There was a thick creeper of passion-fruit vines behind her, and through it she could hear Tettawonga talking to the cook. "'Mars Gillard on burst again,' he said, and chuckled through the side of his lips where his pipe did not rest. Meg sat up in horror. Since she had been at Yarrahappany, she had heard the phrase applied to too many of the station hands not to know it meant a reckless drinking bout. "'Oh, I'm not surprised,' the woman said. "'He's been too sober late days to keep it up. Suppose he's been trying to last the visitors out, but found it too much. "'Who's got the keys?' "'Miss Hassel,' he said. "'You'd a helping her, but good for stores today, Miss Gillett.' <laughs> so that was what had happened to him all these three days she had not seen him. She had heard he had ridden over to the next station on business for Mr. Hassel, but had not dreamed such a thing had overtaken him. The fifth day she had seen him in the distance, once coming out of the storeroom, and looking exactly like himself, only his shoulders stooped a little more, and once smoking outside his own door. The sixth day was the picnic. 
just as light-hearted and merry as the others she could not feel with this disappointment at her heart this shaken trust in human nature how weak he was she thought how ignoble all her pity was swept away in a young large indignation she had hardly shaken hands when they had met in the morning, and all the long drive she was persistently cold towards him. After lunch the party became scattered. Judy took the general and went over to the belt of trees. Pip and Bunty occupied themselves with catching locusts. Baby and Nell gathered wildflowers. Meg knelt down to collect the spoons and forks and put the untouched food back into the baskets away from the ants. "'I will do this. You look hot, Miss Meg. Sit down quietly,' Mr. Gillett said. "'Thank you, but I prefer to do it myself,' Miss Meg said, with freezing dignity. He did not offer again, but sat and watched her pack up the things with an untranslatable look on his face. When she had almost finished, he took something out of his pocket. "'I have to give you this again,' he said, and handed her the blue length of ribbon, folded smoothly, but showing the crease where it had been tied. She took it without lifting her eyes, crushed it up in her hand, and slipped it into her pocket. I had almost hoped you would say I might keep it in, in spite of everything, he said, just as a talisman against the future. But your lips are too severe, miss, for me to cherish the hope longer. It would be as useless as it has been, she said stiffly. Her hands moved nervously, however, and she wrapped up the remains of a duck and a jam tart together. Then am I not to have another chance, he said. It would be no use, Meg repeated, gathering up bananas and oranges with a heightened colour. He does not realise how wicked he has been. He thinks he ought to be forgiven at once, was her thought. He emptied the billy slowly on the ground. He put on its blackened lid and tied the newspaper around it. Then he looked at her again, and the way her soft hair fell on her forehead made him think of his young dead sister. "'I beg you to give it to me again, little Miss Meg,' he said. Meg's heart and head had a rapid battle. The former was tender and charitable, and bade her take the little ribbon and give it to him instantly. The latter said he had sinned greatly, and she must show him her disapproval by her manner, even if she yielded what he asked her in the end. The head won. "'My influence is evidently useless. That bit of ribbon would make no difference in the future,' she said very coldly. He leaned back against the tree and yawned, as if the subject had no more interest for him. "'Ah, well,' he said. "'I dare say you are right.' Meg felt a little taken down. "'Of course, if you really want the ribbon, you can have it,' she said loftily. She took it from her pocket and tendered it to him. But he made no effort to take it. "'Keep it to tie your hair again, little girl,' he said. "'After all, I don't suppose it would be any use.' Meg continued her packing with burning cheeks, and he filled up his pipe and smoked it, watching her idly the while. "'It's an odd thing,' he said, more as if making an observation than addressing her but the gentlest-looking women are nearly always the hardest. Meg opened her mouth to speak, but found nothing to say, so closed it again and began to count Mrs. Hassel's forks for the fourth time. "'I wonder would you mind if I gave you a little advice, Miss Meg, in return for all you have given me?' he said, taking his pipe from his mouth and looking at it, as if he were trying to find out the lettering on its nickel plate. "'Certainly not.' She laid down the bundle and looked at him with calm, surprised eyes. "'Say whatever you please. I do not mind in the very least.' He sat up and played with the handle of a strap while he spoke. "'You have brothers,' he said. "'Some day they will go a little astray, for it is only women like you, Miss Meg, and angels who can keep to the path always.' "'Don't be too hard on them. 
don't make an effort to show them the difference between your whiteness and their blackness. They will see it right enough, but they won't like you to draw their attention to it. Try and look gentle and forgiving. They'll feel quite as miserable as you could wish them to feel. The world has a beautiful frown of its own and an endless vocabulary of cold words. Wouldn't it do if the little sisters left it the monopoly of them? Oh, said Meg. Her cheeks were crimson, and all the dignity had oozed out of her voice. He buckled the strap round nothing with infinite care, and went on again in a low tone. Suppose Pip did something very wrong some day, and the world flung stones at him till he was bruised all over. And suppose, feeling very wretched, he came home to his sisters. And Meg, because wickedness was abhorrent to her, threw a few more little stones, so that the pain might teach him a lesson he could not forget. And Judy, because he was her brother and in trouble, flung her arms round him and encouraged him, and helped him to fight the world again, and gave him never a hard word or look, thinking he had had plenty. Which sister's influence would be greater, Miss Meg? Meg's soft little mouth was quivering. Her eyes were on the ground, because the tears would have splashed out if she had lifted them. Oh, she said again, oh, how very horrid I have been. Oh. She covered her face with her hands, for one of her quickly gathered tears was trembling on her lashes. Mr. Gillett dropped the strap and the pipe and looked across to her with tender eyes. "'I'm more than twice your age, Miss Meg, old enough nearly to be your father. You will forgive me for saying all this, won't you?' "'I was thinking of my sister who died. I had another little sister, too, a year older. But she was hard. Only went to her once. She is one of the best women in England now, but her lips are severe. Little Miss Meg, I could not bear the thought of you growing hard.' Half a dozen big tears had fallen down among the forks. Meg was crying because it was borne upon her what a very hateful creature she was. First Alan lectured her and spoke of his sister, and now this man. He misinterpreted her silence. I have no right to speak to you like this because my life has been any colour but white. That is it, isn't it, Miss Meg? He said with great sadness. Meg dropped her sheltering hands. Oh, no, she said. Oh, how can you think so? It is only I am so horrid. She rummaged in her pocket and brought out the ribbon. Will you take it again? She said, oh, please, just to make me feel less horrid. Oh, please take it. She looked at him with wet, imploring eyes and held it out. He took it, smoothed its crumpledness and placed it in his pocketbook. God bless you, he said, and the tone made Meg sob. End of chapter 19 Chapter 20 Little Judy Across the grass came a little flying figure, Judy in a short pink frock with her wild curls blowing about her face. Are you a candidate for sunstroke? Where is your hat, Miss Judy? Mr. Gillett asked. Judy shook back her dark tangle. Sorrow I know I knows, she said. It's a banana the general is after dying for, and sure it's a dead body I shall live to see myself if you've eaten all the oranges. Meg pushed the bag of fruit across the cloth to her and tried to tilt her hat over her tell-tale eyes. But the bright dark ones had seen the wet lashes the first moment. I suppose you've been reading stupid poetry and making Meg cry, she said, with an aggressive glance from Mr. Gillett to the book on the grass. You really ought to be ashamed of yourselves, such behaviour at a picnic. It's been a saving in oranges, though, that's a mercy. She took half a dozen great fat ones from the bag, as well as four or five bananas, 
and went back with flying steps to the belt of trees, where the general in his holland coat could just be seen. He was calmly grubbing up the earth and putting it in his little red mouth when she arrived with the bananas. He looked at her with an adorable smile. "'Baby!' "'Baby!' she said, swooping down upon him with one of her wild rushes. "'Baby!' She kissed him fifty times. It almost hurt her sometimes, the feeling of love for this little fat, dirty boy. Then she gathered him up on her knee and wiped as much of the dirt as possible from his mouth with the corner of his coat. "'Nana!' he said, struggling onto the ground again, so she took the skin from a great yellow one and put it in his small, chubby hand. He ate some of it and squeezed the rest up tightly in his hands, gleefully watching it come up between his wee fingers in little worm-like morsels. Then he smeared it over his dimpled face and even rubbed it on his hair while Judy was engrossed with her fifth orange. So, of course, she had to whip him for doing it, or pretend to, which came to the same thing. And then he had to whip her, which did not only mean pretense. He beat her with a stick he found near, he smacked her face and pulled her hair, and bumped himself up and down on her chest, and all in such solemn, painstaking earnestness that she could only laugh even when he really hurt her. "'Do it now?' he said at last anxiously. And she began to weep noisily with covered face and shaking shoulders, in the proper penitent way. And then he put his darling arms round her neck and hugged her, and said, "'Juju!' in a choking little voice, and patted her cheeks, and gave her a hundred eager, wide, wet kisses till she was better. Then they played chasings, and the general fell down twenty times, and scratched his little knees and hands, and struggled up again, and staggered on. Presently Judy stood still in a hurry. There was a tick working its slow way into her wrist. Only its two back legs were left out from under the skin, and for a long time she pulled and pulled without any success. Then it broke in two, and she had to leave one half in for little Grandma and Kerosene to extract on their return. Two or three minutes it had taken her to try to move it, and when she looked up the General had toddled some distance away, and was travelling along as fast as ever his little fat legs would carry him, thinking he was racing her. Just as she started after him he looked back, his eyes dancing, his face dimpled and mischievous, and oh, so dirty. And then, ah, oh, it is so hard to write it. My pen has had only happy writing to do so far, and now... You rogue, Judy called, pretending to run very quickly. Then the whole world seemed to rise up before her. There was a tree falling, one of the great gaunt naked things that had been ring-barked long ago. All day it had swayed to and fro, rotten through and through. Now there came up across the plain a puff of wind, and down it went before it. One wild, ringing cry Judy gave, then she leapt across the ground, her arms outstretched to the little lad running with laughing eyes and lips straight to death. The crash shook the trees around, the very air seemed splintered. They had heard it, all the others, heard the wild cry, and then the horrible thud. How their knees shook, what blanched faces they had as they rushed towards the sound. They lifted it off the little bodies the long silvered trunk with the gum dead and dried in streaks upon it. Judy was face downwards, her arms spread out, and underneath her was the general, a little shaken, mightily astonished, but quite unhurt. Meg clasped him for a minute, but then laid him down, and gathered with the others close around Judy. Oh, the little dark quiet head, the motionless body in its pink crushed frock, the small thin outspread hands. Judy! Judy, Pip said, 
in a voice of beseeching agony. But the only answer was the wind at the treetops and the frightened breathings of the others. Mr. Gillett remembered there was no one to act but himself. He went with Pip to the stockman's hut, and they took the door off its leather hinges and carried it down the hill. "'I will lift her,' he said, and passed his arms around the little figure, raising her slowly, slowly, gently upwards, laying her on the door with her face to the sky. But she moaned. Oh, how she moaned! Pip, whose heart had leapt to his throat at the first sign of life, almost went mad as the little sounds of agony burst from her lips. They raised the stretcher and bore her up the hill to the little brown hut at the top. Then Mr. Gillett spoke outside the doorway to Meg and Pip, who seemed dazed, stunned. "'It will be hours before we can get help, and it is five now,' he said. "'Pip, there is a doctor staying at Boulagree, ten miles along the road. Fetch him. Run all the way. I will go back home, fourteen miles. Miss Meg, I can't be back all at once. I will bring a buggy. The bullock dray is too slow and jolting, even when it comes back.' You must watch by her. Give her water if she asks. There is nothing else you can do. She is dying, Meg said. Dying? He thought of all that might happen before he brought help, and dare not leave her unprepared. I think her back is broken, he said very quietly. If it is, it means death. Pip fled away down the road that led to the doctor's. Mr. Gillett gave a direction or two, then he looked at Meg. "'Everything depends on you. You must not even think of breaking down,' he said. "'Don't move her. Watch all the time.' He moved away towards the lower road. She sprang after him. "'Will she die while you were away? No one but me?' Her eyes were wild, terrified. "'God knows,' he said, and turned away. It was almost more than he could bear to go and leave this little girl alone to face so terrible a thing. "'God help me!' she moaned hurrying back but not looking at the hot, low-hanging sky. Help me, God! God, help me! Help me! End of chapter 20